I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to River Cafe Table 4, a production of iHeartRadio and Atomize Studios. Artists coming together in the restaurant, mm. you know, and Picasso drawing on the tablecloth mm. and all that kind of thing. It's really known throughout history, but it is to do with the solitariness of being in the studio and the solitariness of being an artist, being very much alone. So this idea of coming together to eat is such a nice thing. Here we are on an unseasonably wet and cold Saturday in London. But I feel warmed, as I always am, by being with my friend, Tracy Emin. She's a great friend and a great artist. Tracy, over to you. Okay, so um, my favorite thing to eat here is the grilled squid with fresh red chili and rocket. Eight medium squid, no bigger than your hand. Six large fresh red chilies, seeded and very finely chopped. 150 ml extra virgin oil. 225 grams of rocket. Four tablespoons of oil and lemon dressing. One lemon cut into quarters. To make the sauce, put the chopped chilies in a bowl and cover with extra virgin olive oil. Season. Heat a grill until very hot. Place the squid, including the tentacles, scored side down on the grill. Season and grill for two minutes. Turn the squid pieces over. They will immediately curl up and by which time they will be cooked. Toss the rocket in the dressing. Arrange two squid bodies with tentacles on each plate with the rocket. Put a little of the chilli sauce over the squid and serve with lemon. I'm so happy that you chose such a classic, typically a representative of the River Cafe recipe. And I was wondering why you chose squid, chili, and rocket. When I go to a restaurant, I always like to choose food that I wouldn't cook myself. But God, it's so easy to cook, so maybe I should <laughs> do it. Um, but then, and also I'm Mediterranean, so... Um, Squid is such a Mediterranean food and I always have this sort of like inner primal thing that if I can eat Mediterranean, eat part of my uh, ancestral food as much as possible. It makes me feel really good when I eat it, mm. so that's why I chose it. When you say that you're Mediterranean, tell me about being Mediterranean because I thought you were Margate. <laughs> well, Margate is Isn't like, it, is that yeah, med? I didn't yeah. Margate, the Mediterranean, yeah, Margate. And well, I'm Turkish Cypriot. My dad's Turkish Cypriot and my great-grandfather was from the Sudan and he was a slave in the Ottoman Empire and in around 18, no, about 1900, he was given his freedom in Cyprus with 50 sheep. So we're known as the, there's a thing called like the Black Turks and they actually came from the slaves from the Ottoman Empire and my family on the Mediterranean side is, is from that background. So um, there's your Mediterranean. 
my dad was a really fantastic cook, like amazing cook. Grew all his own vegetables. We actually grew all our own, me and my dad grew all, our, all my vegetables on my studio roof back in the 90s. Everything, everything from cucumbers, courgettes, aubergines, potatoes, tomatoes, heritage tomatoes, beans, green beans, everything. And then my dad would cook. So, and my mum was a terrible cook. I hate saying it, but it's true. And the kind of food I grew up on was a kind of strange mixture of, like, this sort of really amazing food that my dad could cook and this really terrible food that my mum could cook that I really loved. Mm. And what, what you loved what? Your egg, mother's food? Egg and chips. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> my mum was completely against me cooking and when we were cooking at school, my mum would actually wrote me letters saying, my daughter will not learn to cook. My daughter is not going to be a slave to any man. But the truth was, we didn't actually have the money for the cooking ingredients. Mm. So my mum, but even so, it worked out kind of badly and kind of good. I didn't learn to cook at school. Cooking at school was pretty awful. And um, I only learned to cook when I was much older, when I was sort of like around 18 or 19. And even now, I'm not a very good cook, but I really like nice food. You do, I know. Yeah, and what I cook, I cook well. Yeah. So, well, yeah. It's so interesting that she she did not want you to be stuck in the kitchen as a, well, a slave or anyone, as a, <laughs> as a woman that yeah, was, in a had way, to cook for, her, for a man. That we, that's normal. Yeah, but in a way, but for that, that time back in the 70s, it was pretty radical as yeah. well. It was kind of like... a strange dichotomy because there's my father being a good cook and there's my mum being a bad cook telling me not to be a slave to any man yeah well was she was she ambitious for you in every way apart yeah. from keeping you from cooking yeah did she, she have very strong ambitions for yeah, you yeah she put me on the pill when I was 14 mm. to make sure I didn't get pregnant that's pretty ambitious she considered the idea of me having children to be a complete failure and and not a positive thing. So she did everything to stop me from being a single mother and a young single mother. But that's right or wrong, it doesn't matter. It seemed to have worked in my, my mm. favour. <laughs> yeah. Mm. And, um, yeah, she's, when I think about it, she was really not... My mum was very cosy person, mm. but she wasn't home-based, really. Mm. It wasn't her strong point. Do you think she wanted to do something else, did she, for herself? No. Absolutely. My mum was a brilliant dancer, and when she was sort of around 15, she had an interview, uh, audition in a theatre to uh, for dancing, and her dad wouldn't let her go. Yeah, well, there you are. And when you left her, what, how old were you when you actually left your father's cooking, the deliciousness of growing vegetables? And, and ve how, how old were you when well, you left actually, all that? Well, um, actually, my dad never lived at home. My dad only spent... My dad left us when we were about seven and my mum left us when we were 12 for quite long periods of time. So me and my twin brother, when we grew up, it was very different from other people's backgrounds and it was very impoverished. We were incredibly poor. We, it's strange, we, had a, um, we were very wealthy when we had that growing up until we were seven and then my dad lost everything. And my dad was married, so my dad spent three days with his wife, three oh. days with my mum, we always say one day somewhere else. So, um, and so when my dad was around, the cooking or anything my dad did was like a big treat.
I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for up to half the cost. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular's single line 1, 5, and 10 gig data plans with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest cost single line postpaid unlimited talk text and data plans offered by T-Mobile and Verizon January 2024. My dad came here in 1948 on a £10 ticket from Cyprus. And then my mum's a gypsy, so it's really quite exotic, actually. You know, I was brought up on pomegranates and watermelon... And with with my dad, and while my dad was at home, and then when I was older, um, I started travelling to Turkey with him. As soon as we could go back to Cyprus, when I was, I think I was twenty, when the war finished in 1984, my dad took me to Cyprus. Said, "Baby, we're going home," (laughs) and and that was the first trip to Turkey and Cyprus since I was a baby, and um, and it was like amazing. Um, to be with my dad, to be living with my dad there, cooking, everything. And it, and my mum was kind of a bit pissed off because um, all that she'd done for me and then suddenly I'm like... With, but, I'm, you know, I'm my, my father's your daughter. father's daughter. Well, yeah. you started out by saying you're Mediterranean. And so yeah. to actually probably go and see the Mediterranean and have the food. But when we, when we were... Up until we were about six, we would go to Turkey regularly once oh. a year. And we spent... Um, when we were really tiny, we spent two periods of six months there, once when I was about three or four, and then another time when I was six, we spent six months there. And and all that time, it would have been Mediterranean food and Mediterranean cooking. And, and we used to drive to, to Turkey, and my, this is really cool, my, we used to have, in the back of the our car, we had a Zodiac, we had these little tiny wooden chairs, you know, with the um, wrapper to... Yeah, seats, and my dad just we had a brand new zodiac. My dad just stuck a hole through the roof, through the, the you know the bits, and then got bungee elastic things around the chairs, and then just sat us in the back of the car, bouncing up and we were twins, bouncing up and down on these chairs with those little noddy dogs. And we'd drive to Turkey, and we'd stop on the way all, all the time. And my dad would get the Kalagas stove out and fry eggs and cook and everything, and and we'd go go to fields and take watermelons and and things so it was really exciting and like adventurous these drives and I'm being I'm romanticizing about it now because it is romantic and it was different and it was different from everybody else's upbringing that I knew and so we went from that to this like to squatting in a cottage and my mum working in a hotel as a waitress and a chambermaid and so it was like from high to low, really fast, a reversal of fortune. When you were having to cook for yourselves, did you, or what, did you eat? What did you do <laughs> no, when there was mom, nobody so cooking? My mom, so my mum was out a lot, most of the time working, 
Lady and at weekends as well, she'd be out to three in the morning. So we were on our own, and often my mum would leave us sandwiches and whatever. But my big thing was just like orange, just orange squash, oh. and um, just tons of orange squash, and sitting up at night crocheting in bed. And we, and also for example, like Christmas, like you said about this. A lot of this podcast is about people sitting around the table and remembering mm. it. Oh, there was no sitting no. around the table for me. Mm. It was sitting and watching the telly with a tray with egg and chips, yeah. you know, when my mum come home. And Christmas was not Christmas. We didn't have Christmas because my mum was always working. Our Christmas was like a week after and kind of cobbled together, but it was never going to feel the same as mm. the real Christmas. And one, I remember we had Salvation Army one year, you know, coming around with food and presents because we didn't have anything. My mum, if she didn't work, we had nothing. And that is a very different upbringing mm. to a lot of people I know. It, and it's not a thing to feel sorry for. I'm just stating the difference. Yeah. And, and also it was pretty shocking to go from this wealthy thing of being quite spoiled as well in lots of ways up until I was seven and then nothing. Zero. Zero. So, do you remember being hungry? Mm. You do? Yeah. And I think my mum remembers us. My mum's dead now. But, you know, my mum, this, this is one of the most shameful things that I have to say, but in a way I'm sort of proud of her. When the, the hotel was derelict, behind, my mum went climbing on the roof and took lead off the roofs to sell mm. it so we had something to eat. Mm. And that is on another level, complete mm. different level. And and so much of this is down to education and so much of it, and it's like the cooking thing and education and food. It, there is really better ways to do this. But when you actually have nothing and you you hear about these people, women shoplifting to get their babies food and you it seems unimaginable, but it's not when you've been that poor. It's not. And it's happening now. And yeah. We know that it's happening today and we know that, you know, when children couldn't get to school because of the lockdown, they were missing the only meal they had for the whole day. Oh. You know, very many children only have lunch and that's it. I'm a big supporter of the Salvation Army, also mentioned earlier, and the Salvation Army were feeding 60,000 people a day, mm. yeah. a day, and it's more now. And, mm. and all of these, um, I support a food bank in Margate or whatever, it is at a really, really bad level. So... Um, yeah. And when you left, when you left, when did, did you, did you come left, to London at 13? No, I left own? school at 13 and yeah. I had to go back to school by law for the last four months from Christmas till May. Otherwise my mum, social services would have been involved or whatever. And my mum, my mum didn't mind if we didn't go to school. And I, I was brought up with absolutely no rules. And I guess this might be slightly the gypsy side of things. No rules whatsoever. We made our own rules up. If I didn't want to go to school, I didn't go to school. I didn't want to brush my teeth. I didn't want to brush my teeth. I want to have sex, I have sex, as long as I was not going to get pregnant. All of these kind from the age of about 13, 14. And, um, and not going to school was because school was so depressing. It was like, oh, my God, I'd get there and they'd shout at me or this would happen or that would happen. I wasn't doing what I wanted to do. So the last few months when I went back, I just did art for four months, more or less, three days a week. And then left when I was 15 and then came to London. The day I could leave school, 
that day, the 1st of May, I think it was, I just came straight to London with a bag with two David Bowie albums and some clothes. (laughs) Where did you stay? I stayed in all different places. I stayed in a squat in Warren Street, which was pretty educational, with quite a lot of well-known, they're quite well-known people now, very successful people live there. And I stayed with different friends, different floors. I stayed in a cupboard in Clapham for quite some time. And and it's a real mystery how I never really got into trouble. Or But I was kind of sassy and sort of streetwise. So that saved me quite a bit. So I learned a lot and I grew up. I, but I was always a lot more mature for my age. I don't know why. I just grew up very quickly. I had to. and um, But I don't really have such big regrets over that because it wasn't it wasn't my fault it wasn't my doing do you have memories of of food in that poverty and that time in london when you first came (laughs) (laughs) okay so this is my only squat memory of food at warren street i was only 15 or 16 and i turned up and they were in the basement cooking there a lot of them went to st martin's and the royal college of art or whatever so it was a good influence in lots of ways and i was so hungry and they said, are you hungry, Trace? I said, I'm so... I probably hadn't eaten for about two days, wasn't it? And then they told me they were cooking dog. Oh. And I believed them, so I wouldn't eat it. And that was one of my... And when I bring this up in a story, when I see any of them, they're always... Yeah, it's not a good story, but that's my only real big story about food. I think poverty, you know, poverty and food, uh, youth and food, loneliness and food being, you know, thrust into... A world where you don't know where you're sleeping, what you're eating, you know, the lack of being taken care of is is wouldn't, fundamental. And it's true because now I have this thing that I, I've what I, I call, I work on my war cupboard and I have yeah. one in, in France in my house there and one in London. And my war cupboard is just full of like literally if there was like a, new, a, a war, I've got enough food to keep me going in mm. tins and tins of sardines and all kinds of stuff and everything. And it just gives me a sense of security. And I really love going shopping for really nice food and putting it in the fridge and looking at it. And it makes me feel so yeah. safe and cosy yeah. and secure. And I, it's taken me a long time to realise that I had a hang-up about it. I, well, I think probably only in the last few years that I realised how much it meant to me to that food makes you feel secure and comfortable. And for a long time, I didn't eat. I used to be so thin and everything. I might not, I didn't care about it. I didn't care about food at all for years and years and years. I was very um, sort of not anti-food, but I, it just wasn't on my list yeah. of things as a priority for living. But now, now it really is because of the because I understand about my strange relationship with it. And food and art and food and. Uh, creating and you know the 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 solitariness I always think of of an artist you know in the studio working and then um, going out at night and partying and having food drinking being together with other artists when you were in art school was that something that you sort of were you exposed to the idea that you all were painting and working together there was that whole what was it like being no when I, when I was at art school I worked I used to get in was getting late in the morning getting about quarter to 11 which and art school was it I went to Maidstone College of Art and the Royal College of Art I did painting at the Royal College of Art when I was at the Royal College of Art I'd get in about quarter to 11 in the morning and I'd stay to 10 o'clock 
every night and I'd work at the weekends as well. I had no social life when I was at the Royal College of Art, none at all. Just worked every single day. So, and, but the thing about artists and, and restaurants is brilliant because then, after I left art school, years later, when, when I, um, I think one of the first things I did as soon as I started having got money was oysters. And I just, I love oysters. Oh. And I, I, all of my excess income was spent on oysters. Where? Absolutely. Where? Where would you go? Ev- anywhere, everywhere. I'd go, um, well, I'd, I'd actually liked, I actually really liked rock oysters. So that was quite easy. In Whitstable, in those days, you get, you get free oysters for 75p or something. It was amazing. And um, I used to just try all different restaurants, all different oysters, work out what I like, what I don't like. And, and I think my, my high, biggest moment was I was on about 100 a week oysters. 100 oysters yeah. a week. And I used to cycle everywhere. And I was so fit. And I was just lean. I was sort of like a ballerina, just sinew muscle and just like an oyster diet. I was just like on fire. It was fantastic. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Are you tired of your scented cleaning products smelling and cleaning like meh? Then it's time for an upgrade with the power of Clorox Sentiva. With an uplifting scent that smells like coconut, Clorox Sentiva gives you powerful clean like Clorox, but a feeling like <sighs> being transported to a tropical island retreat. Imagine putting your phone on Do Not Disturb, tuning out all the constant, just the feeling of warm sand in between your toes and a fruity drink in your hand. The ones with the little umbrella. Refresh your home to feel like an all-inclusive vacation by getting Clorox Sentiva. Also available in grapefruit and lavender scents at a nearby retail store. You have a house in the south of France. Mm. What is what is eating like there? Did, did you choose it also because it was on the Mediterranean? Um, um, I chose it by default, but yes, it is on the Mediterranean. And I'm on the top of a hill, on top of a hill, um, looking at, I have a sort of 200 and maybe 260 degree of the sea it's just behind me that I can't see the sea and it is really beautiful and it's in the middle of a nature reserve I don't have any neighbors and it's a sort of 25 minute drive to the little town to buy food and everything so what I tend to do is do one shop in the week and that's it Oh. And then I have my wall cupboard, and my favourite cooking is when I get down, to, and I've got a vegetable garden as well, really brilliant vegetable garden, and when I get down to the real nitty-gritty, and I have to be really inventive with what I cook. I really love it, oh. and, and it's exciting, and it's funny with what I come up with and everything. And, and I just cook for myself there as well because there's no, there's no restaurants or anywhere to yeah. eat near me, and, and I love to produce there. Do, do you grow, and you grow your own vegetables? Mm. I, I don't know if you if you do want to talk about this, but we've all had quite a tumultuous time, but probably nobody 
certainly in this room, certainly not me, more than you with, with your illness. And I think your illness must have affected the way you eat because it was to do with your digestive system, isn't it? And so did you, did you have to stop eating when you were ill? Or no, you... because actually you, look, it's not my digestive <clears throat> system, it's my bladder. Oh, okay. So different bag. <laughs> okay. And um, and yes, it has affected the way that I eat because I can't have, I still can't, couldn't have, I can't have a full bowel. I can't be, because it it it, it affects the stoma and everything. And um, my diet's completely changed since I was ill, which is quite, quite strange. It's like totally, cha- I mean, totally changed. Tell me, what do you, what? I eat um, vast amounts of fish, vast amounts of apples, vast amounts of fruit all all day long. I eat um, a lot of, which is not supposed to be good for me, but I eat a lot of cold food. I, and I don't know why, much more than hot food. I eat um, a lot more lemon all the time because of the alkaline. I eat um, my diet, and it's not a conscious thing either. It's really subconscious. It, I have, haven't even tried. I'm not even thinking about it. It's just what's happened. It's strange. So you haven't been directed by doctors of what you can no, but and can't eat. I eat quite healthily. Mm. So they, they, when you're when you're coming out of hospital, you see a nutritionist, and they tell you this and they tell you that. But I'm kind of quite forward thinking on good food. Mm. So when I eat something bad, it's because I really want to. Mm. <laughs> and when you, um, there are so many reasons we eat, isn't there? Reasons we eat because we're hungry, or we eat because we're in a beautiful place and we want to celebrate, or we eat because we are feeling a certain way and we need comfort. If you needed food, if you needed it for comfort, is there a food that you might reach for? And what yeah, would that be? Totally. Apples. 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 I eat probably about six to eight eight apples a day. A day. Apples. Couldn't live without apples. What kind? I like, I've forgotten what they're called. Those pink ones and they're Mm -hmm. kind of sweet. Pink Pink lady. Pink lady, yes. I absolutely love them. I wash them, put them on the breadboard and I get the knife and I don't cut them equally I just slice all bits off till I get to the core so it's all different shapes and maybe I take three of them and I make a big pile on a very beautiful blue delf plate and then I sit anywhere and just slowly eat three apples at a time that are all different bits shapes and pieces and it makes me feel so good that's what we want you to feel Tracy we want you to feel good (laughs) thank you (laughs) thank you To visit the online shop of The River Cafe, go to shoptherivercafe.co.uk. River Cafe Table 4 is a production of iHeartRadio and Atomize Studios. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. 
Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at betterhelp.com. That's better, H-E-L-P dot com.